Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for being with us today. Today we've got a really positive show to deal with a really sometimes negative problem. And I've got Allison Jones-Webb, and Allison comes at it very differently. So Allison spent most of her life in Maine. That's where she graduated from high school and college, raised a family, and had a great career in public health. She's moved to Virginia now. She traded the seacoast for the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, but maintains close ties to families and friends in Maine. Like millions of Americans, Allison's family has been impacted by substance use disorder up and down the different the different generations. And she's written a book called Recovery Allies. And that's what we're going to talk about because it really looks at the recovery process instead of the problem of addiction. She's had a lot of public health training and believes that community action is the most powerful force for change. And recovery is a we thing, not a they thing. She respects different opinions and beliefs about what works to solve addiction crisis, but she relies on evidence, research, and solid data to make decisions and craft policy. As hard as it can be, we all need to acknowledge what works and what doesn't and admit when we really don't know. Allison, thanks so much for being with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, you know, and I am too, because what I want to do, I don't think that everybody, when you talk about recovery from addiction, I don't think everybody understands recovery. And, you know, they certainly understand recovery from heart surgery or, or, you know, a physical problem, but they don't because the recovery is so obvious, you know, oh, you no longer have that sling on your arm. Oh, you know, you, you're no longer using a wheelchair to get around. So there's very, very obvious signs when we look at recovery from certain physical di- problems. But when we look for recovery from addiction, it looks a little different, doesn't it? It very definitely does. You know, a lot of people in the recovery community like to say that there uh, there are millions of them hidden in plain sight. And so there are about 23 million Americans that are in recovery uh, from some form of substance use disorder. And uh, we very often don't know uh, that our neighbors or friends are in recovery. So what recovery looks like, of course, is different for each individual. But um, Basically, what it is, is living a healthy life after addiction. And as I said, that looks different for everyone. Usually, that involves uh, abstinence from mind-altering substances, but not always. Uh, Some people are able to practice moderation uh, in their alcohol and drug use. Uh, But then it just involves uh, finding uh, those things that are meaningful in life, um, having a um, a life that's full of uh, spiritual life, physical health, um, and uh, often it includes um, a lot of people in recovery like to volunteer. So, you know, being connected with their community, not just through work or through their families, but also through volunteer opportunities. So um, you're right. It is difficult to know if someone is in, in recovery. Uh, it's, it's 
It can be invisible. Um, and what does it mean? It means living a healthy life after addiction. Well, you know, and I think there's one thing that stands in the way of recovery, and it's the stigma, you know, that's associated with, and it's not just associated with addiction, it's associated with every mental health problem. Nobody wants to say they're depressed. Nobody wants to say they're anxious because there's such negative, you know, stigma around it. Well, I don't want you on my team if you're so anxious that you can't show up at all the team meetings. Or, you know, if you're so depressed that you can't get out of bed and get to work every day, I don't I don't want to be partnered with you. And that's those are real comments that I have heard my clients share with me that they've they've been told. So and one of the things that, you know, my I guess my purpose in life today, and it actually has been for the last couple of years, is I'm working on finishing a Ph.D. program to create social change around mental health. And I, you know, I look at your book, Recovery Allies, and I see that kind of in the same light, is that your point is, is that recovery is possible. I think I saw in your book, it even says it's probable, right? That's right. So um, most people who have a substance order, use disorder do recover. Uh, and I think that's just a little known fact in the general population that oftentimes we see the negative aspects of addiction. And as we talked about earlier, not the positive side of recovery. And I, you know, I want to applaud your work around social change and stigma because uh, we know, certainly with substance use disorder, that uh, people don't seek help because of the shame that they feel uh, if it's known that they uh, have a problem or it's known that they're looking for help. And the same holds true for family members. So family members uh, bear that shame as well um, when, in fact, it's a pretty human condition, you know, to sort of seek relief from internal pain, which is a lot of times what substance use is, um, and yet we stigmatize it. And, you know, the really tough thing is that stigma carries on into recovery. So here you have, you know, these millions of people who have who have worked hard to get better, right, who've really sort of worked hard to remove chaotic drug use, uh, order their lives the way they want them to, get back in uh, contact with their families and so forth, and still uh, they are stigmatized because of what happened to them in their in their active use. So uh, we have a long ways to go. Uh, one of my reasons for writing the book was to uh, provide a place where there's, you know, um, neutral information and education about addiction and recovery, because one of the reasons that uh, mental health and substance use conditions are stigmatized is because people don't know. They just don't understand uh, some of the physical the underlying physical issues, childhood uh, trauma issues, and so forth that um, lead to some of these conditions. Well, you know, and I'd like to, you know, you made the point that about addiction and it, that it is a brain disease. It is not. Do, are there some bad choices made? Absolutely, there are. But nobody wants to be an addict. Nobody, you know, starts using with the intent, oh, I'm going to become addicted to this. They start using because they're self-medicating. They're trying to deal with other problems in life and their brain, the, the neurobiology, the structure, their brain is different. You know, some people can do, you know, use, have two drinks a day and never touch the third. 
but some people can't. And I think it's important to note that addiction is a brain disease. I think it's a helpful um, a helpful notion for people um, who are suffering from addiction who then, um, as they begin to understand why, uh, sort of that may perhaps the underlying pain, certainly the brain uh, chemical side of things, they can then begin to um, reflect on, okay, so if that's why this is happening, what can I do to get better? And I think it's also helpful for family members to have that understanding uh, rather than to kind of blame either themselves uh, for what's going on with their family member or to blame the family member for the um, the actions that person is taking when um, under the influence of drugs or alcohol. So it's a, um, I think it's been a very helpful, it's very helpful for us to get the word out about that for a lot of people. Well, you know, and shame and blame, those are, those come from, you know, the thoughts, well, you should do that. You must do that. And then when you don't, well, shame on you. It's all your fault that things aren't going the way you want them to. And so I think that a lot of times the negative, you know, we all have self-defeating thoughts. We, I, I used to have the shoulds, and I replaced the shoulds with the coulds. Because coulds, when I, when I looked at it as, well, I could do that. Well, okay. If I did, well, this would happen. Okay. Well, this would happen. Uh, well, this would happen. Okay. I'll do it. You know, so it's it's all about getting the right, the negative thoughts. They're ants, automatic negative thoughts. And they go through your head so fast and furious that you don't even know that they were there. And I think a lot what I have heard from my clients that struggle with addiction is they isolate. They, you know, they pull back, they isolate. And once you get isolated, those negative thoughts, they run rampant. I think you're uh, you're on to something important there about um, addiction being a disease of isolation or a condition of isolation, and uh, not just for the person who uh, is using substances, but also for the people who care for him or her, family members or friends, that there's this uh, downward spiral that happens where uh, if a person is isolating uh, and friends and family members can't kind of get through, well, they just leave them alone. And so then there's more isolation. Uh, which is, you know, you know, we say the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. And so that isolation uh, is just, uh, it, it makes matters worse and worse and worse uh, for the person who is experiencing addiction. And you're right that, you know, changing how, changing the, the negative thoughts, uh, looking inside and making some changes inside is so important to getting better. So let me ask you a question. You, you talked about connection, and I think connection is the key. I you know, we went through a global pandemic, and I saw what isolation and loneliness did to folks. And when I think about somebody that's trying to recover, you know, and oftentimes they're, they're fighting this battle all by themselves. Do you think people can recover on their own? <laughs> well, so what I say in the book is, of of course, people, uh, recovery is an individual act. Uh, so people have, they know, they learn what they need to do to get better, but it is very much a social act as well. And so um, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was to just describe very specific actions that community members can take, family members can take, employers can take, 
librarians can take, we can all take, to support recovery. Because if you think about it, <clears throat> we don't live in, nobody lives in isolation. We live in a community. Uh, and when a person leaves the world of addiction behind and moves into the community, that need for um, <clears throat> community, <clears throat> excuse me, community connection in all aspects of their life, not just uh, peer support from their fellow uh, people in recovery, but from all of us, uh, can really strengthen their recovery path and make things easier as opposed to make things more difficult for them. Well, and I mean, personally, I don't think anybody can do it on their own. I think that, it, and it, they need more than just her family, although family and peer support is certainly vital. But I think that, you know, we as society, we've got to kind of belly up and recognize that where where did the addiction start? It started with either a mental health problem or poverty or, I mean, there's there's it comes from somewhere. And we as society need to really stop and look at it because addiction, I can remember, you know, was it what, a couple of years ago? Opioids were killing everybody? So, yes, yes, you're right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think as a society, if we sort of look at, um, you know, adverse childhood experiences, which um, are very often implicated in a person's, um, you know, experiencing trauma uh, and using drugs and alcohol later on to um, sort of tamp down uh, feelings of anxiety and sadness and, and uh, trauma. Uh, and if you sort of look at that list of adverse childhood experiences, and I'm not going to read the list, but it includes things like uh, being abused as a child, being neglected as a child, poverty certainly uh, is a contrib contributor, um, having someone in your family uh, who's been incarcerated. Um, all of those uh, social aspects contribute to kids not having a solid foundation and later on in life um, going on and possibly using substances. And we, we all have a role there. You are, you are so right. I'm so glad to hear you say that, that uh, we all bear a responsibility to make our communities safer, not just from a, a personal safety point of view, but from a, an emotional safety point of view so, so we can all flourish, but especially young people. Well, and I think what stands in the way of that is people do not understand recovery. And if you don't understand it, how can you support it? I mean, very over my lifetime, I've been associated with different churches and, and the church I'm associated with today does understand recovery and has a community around it. But that's the first that's the first time I've experienced it in a church where I attended. So how do you start to get people to understand what it is? So there are a couple of things that, that I've done in my own learning and that I encourage other people to do. And, I mean, one of the very first things is if you know someone in recovery, someone who's willing to talk about it, ask them. I've found that, uh, you know, when people, people tell their stories, uh, and that's really part of what the recovery community does. It's part of of um, twelve step programs and other programs where uh, they they tell their story of addiction and healing and you know how their lives are right now. If you ask and you listen to what people are saying, you might be amazed um, at what you learn. And again, needs to be in a safe space. So perhaps the church you're going to, where people are in recovery, are willing to talk about it. Um, <clears throat> one thing that 
I worked on for a while was doing community meetings um, with, uh, so we had these young people in recovery who were totally on fire about their own recovery. And uh, we went around and did community meetings in libraries and churches and schools and had them tell their stories. And I think that's an opportunity to change the hearts and minds of people in the community about uh, about addiction and recovery is to listen to those stories. Um, you know, there are, of course, um, there's, you know, information online about recovery. You have to be so careful about that uh, because... <laughs> Uh, you know, there's good information about there out there as well as bad information. Um, but I think, you know, taking the opportunity to get informed as often as possible, ask as many questions with a very open heart and open mind um, about what recovery is. And you made a point earlier about recovery from mental health conditions as well as substance use um, is just very important. Well, you know, it, it, the sad thing is, is it takes resources to be able to recover. And I've seen that with mental health too, that when people can can tap into and and some health, some therapy, whether it's neurotherapy, psychotherapy, EMDR, mindfulness, whatever it is, when they have the resources to tap into that, it really does kind of facilitate the process. I mean, because there are sometimes that, you know, I've had clients that they have a hard time getting here because they don't have a car, you know, mm-hmm. they got to hop on a bus and there's nothing wrong with hopping on a bus, but it doesn't make travel near as easy as, you know, walking out my door and getting in my car. <laughs> that makes it a lot easier. So I yeah, know, I mean, your, there are, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, I know in your book, you talk about, you, you talk about what it takes. I think you called it recovery capital scale, or you talk about recovery and the fact that people need the means to be able to recover. Yeah, and it's, so it is, um, you know, there just is inequality in, in, um, in, in our society around who has what resources, and people who have more resources, like if you have a home, if you have a car, Uh, If you have a job, if you have a 401k, those are all, if you have a solid family around you, um, those are all things that make it uh, easier to seek recovery and remain in recovery. And each one of those things that uh, you don't have, if you're homeless, uh, if you don't have a job, if you don't have a family, uh, those things all make it much more difficult to, to seek wellness. And one of the one of the great things about the recovery community is there are so many free resources in the form of um, support groups, 12-step programs, if that's a good path for you, um, but just generally peer support. I know everybody in recovery that I know is more than willing to help out the next person. So that's an important aspect, but uh, that doesn't solve the problem of, of this uh, issue of recovery capital, right? Some people um, have more, others have less. Uh, what we as a community can do is figure out how to increase recovery capital for the people uh, that uh, that don't have it. And so that is housing, that is, um, you know, jobs, but it's also things like uh, financial management skills and self-esteem and uh, connections, connections in the community, just general connections. And those are things that if we think about our individual position in the com- community, 
regardless of what we are, if we're a barber or if we're a banker, uh, if we think about our role in the community, there are things that we can do to change recovery capital for individuals that are in and seeking recovery. You make a really good point that everybody, every no matter what it is that you have to share, everybody has something to share. Very definitely. And I think, you know, as, as responsible citizens, as people who care, we, you know, we care about the other people in our community. If we thought about it, you know, if we put our minds to it, uh, we could find a way, whatever our individual uh, uh, skills are, our individual position is, we could do something. We can create volunteer opportunities, for example, for for people in recovery. We can uh, we can advocate, you know, before our city or town councils for. Uh, transportation services, for example. Uh, there are just a lot of things that we can do if we put our minds to it. Well, and I think a lot of people aren't opposed to it. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed at how many people have experienced substance use, abuse, or addiction, whatever you want to call it, within their own families. It's pretty common. I don't have a statistic on it, but based upon my limited exposure, it's it's very common. And but because they've had that they have that awareness of it, but they don't know what to do about it. They don't know. And I think some of that comes from fear, you know, well, I don't want to get too involved. I because if I get too involved, I'm, you know, because I've heard I've heard those comments. If I get too involved, then I know that I'm going to be disappointed, my expectations aren't going to be met and and to me the worst thing to do is just to turn your back on it and hope it'll go away because all by itself, my experience is it will not. So yes, millions of Americans are affected by substance use, either their own substance use, somebody they're close to or somebody not quite so close in their family, but, uh, or a coworker, uh, where that impacts your own work, uh, your own work life. And so I think, um, I think a couple of things, we, going back to what we were talking about around stigma, you know, if we sort of remove the stigma of talking about and having a substance use disorder, we basically broaden the field of possibilities for people to act because they won't be quite so afraid, right? And they won't be quite so fearful that if they do it, they'll be stigmatized themselves if they're supporting somebody in recovery. And I think, you know, in some communities, there's like this critical mass that's been, uh, that's come together. Oftentimes it's parents or family members that kind of start out and say, we've got to do something. Uh, and maybe they'll hold a uh, community meeting. Uh, other people start recovery houses. I mean, there are lots of different ways that people get involved. And when you get started, you get this critical mass, uh, then it kind of grows from there. Um, so, yeah, it takes a few brave souls to get started first, for sure. Well, do you, in your book, do you kind of lay it out for people? I mean, because I think that sometimes, I'll be very honest with you, sometimes it's very helpful for me to see things laid out. And because it, it doesn't overwhelm me. Oh, I see. You know, there's like seven things that I need to do to make that happen. And I think in your book, you you do a good job of of starting to lay it out. Where do you think for your for our listener, what do you think the first step for them is? 
So each one of the chapters in the book is laid out um, at the end of each chapter is, you know, what can allies do? And so I tell people, you know, if you don't read, if you don't want to read the whole book, just skip to the end of the chapter. Uh, That's where your to-do list is. Um, And the very first thing at the top of the to-do list for most people is to reflect on their own attitudes about uh, addiction and about recovery, uh, their own attitudes towards using substances. We all use substances at one point or another in our lives. Like, what is our attitude about that use? Um, And to get educated, right? So learning more about ourselves, learning more about the topic of substance use disorder, and then You know, there are pretty specific uh, recommendations or suggestions for, um, boy, for municipal officers, for example, if you happen to be uh, in a city or um, town government, there are all kinds of uh, rules and regulations around housing that you might want to know about uh, if recovery housing comes to your area. Uh, You know, if you're an educator, you might learn about recovery high schools. Uh, You might learn about collegiate recovery programs, where they are. Uh, There's a section on that. And, like, if you have a child who uh, is in recovery, you might want to look at colleges that have collegiate recovery programs if that's their path. Um, So, yeah, the, the suggestions are very specific, but they really start off with looking at your own attitudes and then learning, uh, learning more about addiction and recovery. Well, and I think learning, you know, there's there's more to it than just being aware. You really do have to understand and, and put some energy. And how much time do you have to invest in that? Because a lot of times, you know, we're, a lot of people are running pretty ragged just trying to take care of themselves. And the thought of adding something on top of that, it's overwhelming. But I think, you know, if we can we got a couple of minutes left before we go to break. If we can kind of leave people with the takeaways from what we've talked about in the first half of the show, what would they be? My takeaways um, would be, you know, for people who are interested in learning more, you know, read the book or go online and find information out about addiction and recovery, explore your own attitudes, uh, think about how you uh, talk about addiction, think about how your own attitudes towards substances, uh, and then find out, think about what your skills are in your community and find places where you can connect because that connection uh, for people in recovery is so important as they are trying to, you know, become citizens again in their community, uh, look, looking for ways to be responsible, uh, to find ways to connect with them at the work site or in volu- volunteer opportunities uh, at church, uh, any other places where there's like an authentic and genuine connection with people. Well, that, I think that's a great kind of summary of it. And, and you know, I, I guess I feel a need to mention it. If you feel like you don't have any other place to connect, you don't know where to go, you can always go to an AA or any 12-step program to give you some advice. Because there's, if you really start looking for it, I think you'll find it a lot easier than you thought you would. So stay, we're going to take a break, but stay with us. There's a lot more that we can talk about in the recovery process and there's pathways of recovery and why it's important to learn them. So stay with us and we'll be back and we'll, we'll spread some positive energy about recovery. We'll be back after these messages.
Well, skunks are making the news again. Seems everyone has a skunk story. A friend of mine was dozing on the couch on her patio when she felt something furry brush up against her hand. She thought it was her cat until she smelled a terrible odor. I was petting a skunk, she told me. What's a word for shocked? Timey-wimey. In Colorado, a wildlife officer was called to help a skunk whose head was stuck in a peanut butter jar. After tugging for 10 minutes, they finally freed the critter and it ran away without spraying anyone. Guess that was a fair trade, otherwise known as quitter for quarter. In Minnesota, it's illegal to tease a skunk. What's the word for teasing a skunk? Tan-tan-tanning, port-wardling, and downright foolish. It's marching day. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Before break, we had mentioned, I had mentioned that there are pathways of recovery and why it's important to learn about them. Allison, what can you share with us? So there are so many ways that uh, people uh, seek uh, to get better when they're uh, in a in a situation of addiction. And um, oftentimes people um, seek some type of treatment, uh, which, you know, we we think about treatment uh, that we see on TV as rehab, sort of residential treatment, but that's only one uh, path. Um, oftentimes, people uh, will go to their doctor, and there's medications that they can take. Uh, there are also, of course, lots of outpatient opportunities for counseling and other types of therapy. Um, and as a person, uh, as their brain starts to heal, their body starts to heal, they may also choose um, organizations that provide uh, some type of peer support. Uh, so that would be the 12 steps, Alcoholics Anonymous. A lot of people know about that. Uh, that is free, and there are 12-step meetings literally around the clock now that uh, many of those meetings are online, but also in communities across the country. Um, there are programs, uh, other programs for people who might not choose those, uh, that pathway. So refuge recovery is a Buddhist practice of recovery. Uh, there's smart recovery, which is self-management and recovery training. It's based on the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy. Those groups, um, there are many online. Those groups are led by trained facilitators uh, who really help uh, people who are in those groups to just think about their uh, their situation, do a cost-benefit analysis of why they're using, what do they get from it, what do they, what are the benefits of using, and what are the costs of using, uh, what types of behavior change they might like to make, all the while gaining support from individuals that are in the program as well. Uh, there's Women for Sobriety. Uh, there's Moderation Management, which is a program for people who, it's mostly for people who are drinking who might like to cut back but don't want to have an abstinent pathway. Um, one program that's really popular these days with young people is Phoenix Multisport, which is all based on physical activity, offers all kinds of um, opportunities for climbing and hiking and running and yoga and so forth. Uh, and I've talked to people who found that 
very helpful because it's this path that focuses on your physical well-being, uh, and that's uh, um, very helpful for some people. And then for Native Americans, uh, there's a well-briety movement, also also called white bison, um, and there are some uh, faith-based uh, pathways as well. So there are lots of paths, and what I think the most important thing to communicate to your listeners is that the path that a person chooses, that the path that a person finds helpful, that's the path that we should be supporting. So whether we agree with it or not, whether we think a person should be going to AA or not, uh, if it's working for them, then that's the path that we should be supporting. Um, and I think that's really hard for some family members who might have an opinion uh, about what works best. Uh, but really, you know, watching a person grow and thrive in recovery, that's the evidence that we need that that person has selected a path that works for them. Well, I think you make a really good point, though. Whatever resonates with that person that's in recovery, then that's really you know, what we all need to support because they've got to feel it and they've got to believe in it. And so one thing that um, someone said to me once was, you know, well, look, I did the work. Like I had really good support and I love the support you're providing, but I had a lot of work to do and I did that work. And it's, uh, you know, it's important for a person to be able to own that work and own the path that they choose um, and for us to support that. Uh, yeah, it's uh, how can we know? How can we know uh, what's better for somebody else? Well, you know, and you use the words own it. And those are, I think, very important words, because what I've what I've seen working with a lot of clients with depression and anxiety and trauma. And honestly, I believe everybody's had a trauma. It's not that I wish it on you. I don't. But it's it's called life crisis. Everything you know, there, we've all had a life crisis. And I think that the what I have seen with, in my experience with therapy, is that accepting it and owning it, once you can do that, it's like the doors just kind of open a little bit wider. Hmm. Yeah, learning about yourself and, uh, you know, learning, you know, the dark sides of yourself as well as as the hopeful sides of yourself can really, uh, you know, it's a point of change. It's a point of transformation that uh, we should all celebrate. We should all be celebrating when that happens. Well, you know, you've been in this field for how many years? About 20. <laughs> so I'm sure you've seen, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, you know, there are stories that you could tell are there any stories that you could share that might be motivating or inspiring for some of our listeners? Well, I'll share a story that's actually, it's my own story as a family member. Um, so I'm not in recovery myself, but uh, there are many uh, people in my family who have experienced substance use disorder. And, you know, at one point um, we were very concerned about my nephew and trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, that process of what do we do, um, it, it's a process of learning, okay? So what is the problem? What is the solution? Or what are the possible solutions? What type of treatment uh, do we want to uh, suggest? And so I uh, was able to contact a peer navigator in a healthcare uh, clinic near our house. 
And um, this was a person who was in recovery himself. I knew him from other, you know, from an interview I did with him, actually. And he was so incredibly helpful. So he uh, he learned a little bit about my nephew. He told me about some services that were available. Um, most importantly, he told me about a walk-in clinic. Uh, it was a healthcare provider. It wasn't a treatment clinic, but a walk-in clinic uh, where I could come with my nephew. We went together uh, for an assessment, and they had this is this is like the best the best situation. They had a healthcare provider. They had a peer support person who was in recovery herself. They had uh, a treatment person available to do a brief assessment. Uh, and they had a clinician who prescribed the medication, all like one-stop shopping. And if I could wish for anyone uh, who's a family member, I would wish that experience because, um, you know, there was a connection with somebody who understood the problem right away. There was a person, that person knew the resources, knew where to go, figured out pretty quickly, you know, okay, this seems like this is your best, uh, your best bet given what's going on in the area. And so that, um, that was one experience that I had personally. And I want to also say, um, you know, in my recovery, in my family, excuse me, in my family, generally, uh, we don't really talk too much about um, addiction and substance use disorder. And one of the things that was so fun for me in writing this book was doing interviews with people in recovery who told me their stories, uh, young people, old people, what have you, but they talked about it. And they talked about, uh, you know, one person told me about uh, his uncle, who was just like the most important person. His uncle picked him up every day took him to the inpatient or the intensive outpatient treatment program every day for six weeks, uh, and that that person was just so incredibly important. And, uh, you know, some stories about parents, you know, young people who knew that they had put their parents through the ringer with all of the um, activities that they had, but then their stories of, um, you know, sort of reuniting with their parents and being able to... Uh, form that relationship or reform the relationship and improve it. That was really encouraging for me because that's just not something that we ever talked about in my family. So I loved hearing, uh, hearing other people's stories of just, um, of hope, really of hope. And I think that's what we all have to, that we need to hang on to is hope because when you lose, when you lose that hope, it's to me, then, then what do you have? You have hopelessness. And mm -hmm. that further isolates, that further creates those self-defeating thoughts, that ramps those up probably 100 miles an hour. So it's that's an important point to really to remember that there are there's so many positive stories, but we don't hear about those. You know, we just hear about the the ones that have gone bad. And, you know, one of the things that I've had a couple of clients try is medication to help them with their with the, the process. I don't know much about medication. You know, I, I think you talk about that in your book. What what can you share with us about medication? So um, I'm not a, a clinician, so I can't say, you know, with authority which medications for which uh, which condition or what have you, but I do know 
that some people have been helped tremendously by medications, um, might be antidepressants, but certainly medications for opioid use disorder like Suboxone and Methadone. Um, so they are helpful. And on the other hand, some people have found them to not be helpful at all. So again, you know, it gets back to um, what an individual's needs are, where they are in their recovery or where they are in their addiction, um, and what the conversation is uh, with their healthcare provider. Now, I will say that people in recovery who had um, experiences with prescription medications, so they were using prescription medications uh, to get high, um, they have a pretty significant distrust of healthcare providers. Uh, and may just not be interested in medications at all. Uh, so it, it, it kind of runs the gamut in terms of what's going to be helpful for people, what their experience already is. Um, and uh, again, you know, it's like, well, we need to learn as, as uh, allies. We need to learn about all that. Uh, and then we need to ask questions like, what is your experience with um, Suboxone? Or what is your experience um boy, uh, just using no substances at all. How is it working for you? What are some things that you could tell me so that I would understand your experience better? Um, I would also say that, you know, uh, usually we think about uh, medications in the early, early recovery, the first couple of months of recovery, maybe the first six months of recovery as being helpful. But some people later on in their recovery as they're starting to address the mental health issues, uh, they may need medications as well, uh, and so it's not just in the very beginning, uh, where often we're talking about uh, methadone and suboxone, but later on, other uh, medications as well. Well, and I think that, you know, some people, I'm one of those people, medication has never really worked for. You give me an antibiotic and I get a red rash on my face. So medication certainly not for everybody, but for those that it can be beneficial, it can you get that just going to a, a regular doctor or is it a special doctor you need to see? So that's a really, really good question. So if you have opioid use disorder, so if you have an addiction to, you know, Vicodin or these days fentanyl um, or heroin, uh, there are some doctors who can prescribe uh, Suboxone, uh, and, but not all. And in fact, that is a problem, particularly in rural areas where there aren't that many uh, prescribers. And some doctors uh, refuse to prescribe. They have a stigma themselves uh, about uh, people with addictions. And then, uh, you know, for people who may need methadone, methadone is not prescribed out of doctor's offices. So that's just in special uh, methadone clinics, for lack of a better word. And again, very uh, spotty in rural areas. Uh, more of those are in um, urban areas. So sadly, access to those medications sometimes depends on where you live and how many doctors in your area are, uh, are open to prescribing them. And some treatment facilities, some inpatient uh, residential facilities uh, will prescribe medications, others will not. So if you are a person who has an opioid use disorder and you're seeking help, it's that's one of the things that you need to find out about is where is someone who is a, a Suboxone prescriber or a methadone clinic if that's the path that you choose, if you think medication is going to be helpful for you. 
That's that's good to know. I mean, it. I've heard it said that, you know, recovery starts with living clean. And to me, that means clean eating, good sleep, uh, a nice, safe place to, to live in. And not everybody that has been on the addiction path has all that. What, what if you just don't have a place that you can crash at and that, that you can go home to and be safe to? I mean, is there certain recovery houses that are set up? So, so that is such a great question. And I think one of the reasons that people's recovery doesn't work out the way they want it to uh, is because this is all these aspects of reca- recovery capital is because they are lacking in some of those really important uh, things that we need to, to get by in our culture. And housing being one of the primary, like perhaps the most important uh, services available uh, because it, it, it's sort of like a launch pad. So when you have stable housing from there, you can do these things that you need. You can seek uh, health care. You can seek uh, counseling. You can look at getting a job. But without housing, all of that is virtually impossible. So recovery housing, um, every state has some form of recovery housing, uh, more in urban areas than in rural areas. Um, and recovery housing is usually um, houses that are run, owned, run, or operated by people who are in recovery themselves, um, that uh, it's usually a sober living environment, meaning there are no uh, mind-altering substances permitted on the premises, uh, where people live together, uh, they learn or relearn how to live in relationship with other people, how to hold each other accountable for things like uh, keeping the bathroom clean and having a chores list and fixing food. Uh, Most people in recovery housing are uh, required to either volunteer or work uh, after they've been in the house for a short period of time. So starting to build that recovery capital that's just been decimated. And again, you know, without housing, it is just so difficult to pursue any of those other aspects of healthy living or, as you say, clean living. Um, Sleep, you mentioned sleep alone is impossible without uh, some safe place to live where you can uh, rest your head at night. Um, And the list goes on from there. Well, and I think, you know, you said in every state there, there are some recovery houses. How would somebody find that out? Is that through state government? Is that federal government? Is that through churches? So there is a national organization. It's called the National Alliance of Recovery Residences, NAR. Um, And I'm pretty sure their web address is naronline.com. And they have a list of the states with um, certifying agencies, agencies that certify recovery residences, that they are safe places to live, Uh, for people in recovery. So that would be the place that I would start. Um, There may be some information at the state level, but honestly, uh, in my experience, uh, (laughs) as a person looking for resources, starting at the state level can be extremely confusing. Uh, And unless your state has, you know, a Department of Recovery Support Services, which if you do, uh, it's going to be pretty hard to find uh, in particular, recovery residences. Well, at least at least that's a starting point for people. 
because I, I don't know where you what it is like where you live, but in Dallas, the homeless population is it's always there. I mean, it is always there, and it's something that if I can't imagine just trying to exist on the street. That's not optimal recovery. No, I think it's really impossible. I, well, I don't want to say impossible. Nothing's impossible. But I think that it, it's just such an enormous barrier to um, to a healthy recovery. And, um, you know, homeless shelters are helpful um, or sometimes other types of uh, the housing first model. There are some other housing options available. But for sober living, where you get more than just a bed and, you know, breakfast in the morning, but where you really get connection with other people and a structure to your daily living. Um, there's really nothing like recovery housing as a, as a way to, as a, again, as a launch pad, as a way to launch your recovery. Well, hopefully, you know, as people become better educated about recovery, there will be more of those and they'll be easier to find. Um that's all. I guess that's all we can do is just I think the more you talk about it. And that was one of the reasons why I was so interested in having you on the show today is because people have got to understand that, yeah, you can recover instead of, you know, just assuming that it's not ever going to happen. Um, and sometimes it doesn't. But more times than it doesn't, it actually does. That's right. And, you know, one thing that I'll, I do want to uh, say here is that uh, as, a, as a nation, you know, we have started putting more resources into recovery support services. And so some of these things that we're talking about, you know, treatment and recovery housing, um, there is more federal money available. And, you know, regardless of what your politics are about, um, you know, whether you're on the left or on the right, the funding that's becoming available for recovery support services is making it possible for communities to have recovery housing, to have recovery community centers, to figure out what the other needs are of people in their community that are in recovery. And so there's there's hope in that way um, that there really hasn't been in the past. Well, what about for people, you know, that maybe have a criminal record? Uh, are they allowed in to the to recovery houses. So very good question. So having a, a criminal record, a, fel, a, fel, a felony conviction on your record, is a tremendous barrier to employment and to housing, and sometimes to education. And so, for recovery housing, uh, it's typically not a barrier. Uh, it's acknowledged that uh, people who have addictions very often have criminal records, but um, so for recovery housing, uh, that's actually a really good place to start if you have uh, a felony conviction. The problem may happen then when it's time for you to leave recovery housing and choose maybe to live in an apartment or, you know, with some buddies in an apartment, um, because uh, many landlords will do a screen, you know, a background check, uh, and simply eliminate uh, anyone who has a felony background. And the same for employers. Uh, so we, we have a ways to go in in educating uh, landlords, educating employers about the difference between a person who's actively using and a person who's in recovery, and that that felony conviction, okay, that's part of their past, but it is their past. 
uh, and their present and their future uh, is living in recovery with all types of, um, you know, with all the positive things that come along with that, including the ability to make money, the, the ability to pay rent, the ability to be responsible about maintaining an apartment and so forth. Well, and I think one of the things that I have heard people say is, you know, if they have peer support, if they have somebody that they can lean on when they need to, or that they just feel believes in them, that goes a long, long way. Oh, you know, the evidence is just so clear about that. And, you know, people that I interviewed, you know, said, you know, it's really helpful to have counselors, really helpful to have counselors, but it's my community of peers that helped me most and that keep helping me. So, you know, that keep me buoyed when, you know, I'm down or when I start to have cravings, you know, somebody might have a suggestion for what to do. Uh, people are able, you know, people are available to be called in the middle of the night uh, to be supportive. And so uh, if you're a family member and you're, you want to do something to help, you know, your family member in recovery, connect them to peers, right? That, that could be very, very important. Well, I think that is such an important point to note. We've got about three minutes left. And for those people out there that, I mean, there's so much information in this book, we haven't even started to touch on it. But for people that out there that want, want to buy the book or they want to learn more, or they want to find you, how do they do that? Well, thank you for this opportunity to talk about that. I appreciate it a lot. Um, so the book is published by North Atlantic Books. Uh, It's available on the North Atlantic Books website, northatlanticbooks.com. It's also available, um, you know, through online booksellers that we all know, and it should be in local bookstores and in libraries. So uh, if it's not in your local library, you can always ask a librarian to order a copy. I would strongly encourage that. Um, It's available in audio format. Uh, it's also available, uh, obviously, um, in in print format. So lots of different ways. Um, so go online. Uh, and if you want to learn more about the book or learn more about me, uh, you can go to my website, allisonjonesweb.com. Uh, you can communicate with me that way. There's a link to my email there. I would love to hear from people. Uh, if you've read the book, if you have comments, if you have questions, I'd love to have a conversation with readers about it. Well, that's great. That really is because it's that personal interaction and just knowing, you know, that maybe this has really produced some deep thoughts in some people and maybe it's made them realize that they are a resource. You know, they can be a resource for someone out there that they that they know and they care about. But just having that that point of contact. okay, I want to do this. You know, what do I do? Because um, I've had convers- I've had many conversations like that. They may not be more than five minutes, but just that jump start can make life so much easier. And Alice and I, I thank you so much for for being with us today and and sharing your story, your personal story, and the book. As I said, the book has got a ton of information that we didn't really even touch on. But my, I guess my takeaway for people that are listening is that recovery does happen. It's very, very possible. I think you even say it's probable. So please know that. And and please pick the book up, Recovery at Allies, if you feel like that maybe you can learn something from it. Thank you again, Allison. I, I appreciate your time and your energy. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.
Medicine and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Thank you.